here's the title of my message. It's a message I heard when I was in my early 20s and it opened my eyes for something. I'm not stealing it. It's the scripture. I'm going to talk from the same scripture because even though I am now a gray beard with young adult children, I was once a 24-year-old who found Jesus and sat in church, heard someone read a scripture that put the whole entire future of my life onto a different trajectory. And so I figured that I would gift you the same level of trauma tonight. Is that okay? And hopefully you too, when you're 46-year-old like me and parking your walking frame over here, that you will be able to say, not, not me, not Ben, not his words, but actually something profound from God's word has actually spoken into my future. And it applies whether you're 22, 42, 82 or 92. If you're 102, you can just relax. We have no expectations. You deserve enjoyment now for the rest title of my message. Please don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Michael Carroll. You wouldn't know him, but you might have heard the story before. When he was age 19, he secured the British jackpot. It's a lottery. He won 9.7 million pounds sterling. He paid one pound for his lottery ticket. Come on, who's out there taking steps of faith every week? Buying I'm not encouraging you to do it, by the way, but I know people out there doing it. You know, is it really gambling if you've got a word from the Lord, Pastor? You can ask your pastors after I fly the coop. He won 9.7 million pounds. Some of you have already Googled that into what is today's dollar equivalent. It's about 50 cents in Australian money with inflation. But due to financial mismanagement, he didn't maintain his riches. Think about this. Think cars, jewellery, alcohol and drug fueled parties. And he burned through all of his cash. He was known, famous in the UK media, as the Lotto Lout. By 2013, 12 years after his win, he was bankrupt and living poor in government benefits, in government housing. He wasted 9.7 million pounds. Ouch. How many people right now just think, I just want to transform myself into your mother and slap you, you know. (laughs) Clarissa Dixon Wright, have you heard of her? In the late 70s, Clarissa Dixon Wright was a British television show star. She was part of the show Two Fat Ladies. You're not allowed to name shows that way anymore. Her mother died and she received an inheritance of 2.8 million British pounds upon her mother's death. She already held a high position as a movie star, a highly paid movie star, and she was also a highly paid attorney in London. How many law people are in the room? Imagine working in London, yeah. Lots of court cases there. She learned with that money to party and buy and consume and actually alcohol really grabbed a hold of her life and she made a dent in her money with alcohol consumption and lavish spending she embarked on a life of partying and became a gambling addict her expenses went on gambling booze luxury yachts jets and hotels and within a few short years her partying lifestyle had or in the United Kingdom ever again. 
by 1982, her money was gone and she was homeless, sleeping in a cardboard box behind a building. These stories are in one way disturbing, but in the other way we know there's just the danger that there's a little bit of us in those guys. A little bit of us. Because the truth is you might not have blown 2.8 million or 9.7 million pounds, but isn't it true every single one of us is in danger of temptation of wasting the riches that we have? We have an inheritance in God. Even if you didn't win the lotto, you have an inheritance in God. In fact, the New Testament tells us quite a lot of things about our inheritance in God. And I find that when I deal with people as a pastor or a father or a husband or a self dealing with myself, it's incredibly easy for me to run away in my mind or in practicality with plans and thoughts and temptations and fantasies that in reality, if I follow them through, I might waste my inheritance in God. I might spend my riches the wrong way. And the older I get and the more I realize, all the people that on the same camp I went on and we all stood out the front and said, God, God, I give you my life. It's like, man, there's not many of us left after a couple of years. All the people I went to Bible college with and we all in Bible college chapel, God sent us to the nations, but many didn't go to the nations. Many went to the pub instead or other places. They aren't serving Jesus anymore. We know, Danielle and I, we constantly do a roll call of the people that were in our Bible college year and what are they doing now? And it's sometimes a tragic thought because people have just wasted the inheritance that God gave them. John 1. Verse 12 and 13 says this, Yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You're a child of God if you've ever said yes to the gospel. That's an inheritance. You're a child of the richest person in the universe. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us not will bless us, would bless us, might bless us, maybe has blessed us. Listen to this. With every spiritual blessing in Christ. You might not have 9.7 million pounds from the lottery, but you have every spiritual blessing in Christ if you are a Jesus follower. Has blessed, past tense. I've got to lay hold of it. I've got to walk in it. But the point is God has blessed me with it. I have an inheritance. How about you? In verse 17 of the same chapter, Paul says, he's praying for the Ephesians. Listen to what he prays. I keep asking God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you would know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you would know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. No, he doesn't say, I pray you'd have an inheritance. He says, I pray God to give you wisdom and revelation that your eyes would be opened, not so that you know what you could get, so that you would know what you already have. Your eyes would be open to know the inheritance that you have. That means we require God to help us and, and act graciously and mercifully and us, Lord, open my eyes so I know what I already have. If we don't know what we have, we might spend and fritter away our future chasing stuff, trying to get something we don't have. Don't waste your life, friend. You have an inheritance. You have a calling. 
Now, to help us think about this, Genesis tells us a story. How many people love a good story? I love story. The Bible is one big narrative, Genesis to Revelation. And, and there are so many incredible narratives and subplots within the great storyland of, of, of Scripture. And each one of these stories takes you, and it's almost like when you open a story in Scripture, you're walking into a chiropractor's office. You know chiropractors, they're sneaky. They say count to three, but you're only at two, and they snap your neck back in place in shocking, oh my gosh. And when you open a story in Scripture, what's really happening is you're being adjusted in unexpected ways. And actually, the trick with Scripture is to read it, you know, we call it a second naivety in biblical studies. Imagine you've never read it before and read it with fresh eyes. And imagine, just don't think, oh yeah, I'll skip over this bit, I've seen it a million times. No, no, just pretend you've never read it before. What would you see in there? Genesis 25, Abraham is dying. And as he's dying, he passes his blessing on to his son, Isaac. Isaac. Isaac is supposed to continue on what Abraham started. Abraham had an incredible calling. Spread out all over the world and I will make you a great nation and bless you. And you will be a blessing to the nations of the earth. Abraham passes that on to his son Isaac. Isaac's supposed to be a channel of the same blessing Abraham inherited. And he's supposed to pass that blessing on to his kids. And Isaac has a wife. And what's funny is Isaac's wife has exactly the same problem Isaac's mum had. There's got to be some weird psychology in there about like, you just marry someone exactly like your parents, don't you? But that's, no, that's a different story for a different day. She can't have a kid. And God does something in their lives, which is just incredible. Listen to this story in Genesis chapter 25 from verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. Listen to this. There's a surprise. You know when someone just tells you something, like they just say it's normal, and you're like, hang on, hang on, what did you just say? Did I just hear what I think I heard? Listen to this. She became pregnant, listen to this, and the babies jostled each other within her. She became pregnant. The babies jostled. Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Are you telling me there's more than one in there? There's more than, there's like two people in there ordering womb service? Two people in there living off, living off cable. Two people in there, you know, you got a problem just calling placenta management every time something's going on. It's Christmas time. What's going to happen? Two babies in there. Who's coming to you for Christmas? Placenta clause is on the way, you know, like there's two babies in there. This is surprising. It's like, whoa, this is crazy. There's no like, and yay and behold, she had two babies. She got pregnant. The babies jostled. She's got traffic in there. It's surprising, and that's what's happened, is you're supposed to be jolted into reality. Snap, you weren't expecting that, were you? She gets pregnant, boom, double, 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 bubble. (laughs) The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? (laughs) Why is my womb at war with itself? Stay on your side, mom, he's on my side. And then, you know, what you would do is you you would go to a doctor, you go see your midwife, you go to your birthing clinic or whatever. Um, they don't have that. So she, she goes to inquire of the Lord. <laughs> the baby's jostled within her. Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. I'm going to ask the Lord, what's going on with my weird? Whoa. And the Lord said to her, and God is in the clinic and clinician business here in Genesis 25. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Prophetic, uh uh-oh, a bit of sibling rivalry pointed forward to. 
and the boys grew up. And Esau, oh, hang on, hang on, sorry, I'm skipping a bit. Okay, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. That explains all of the jostling and the extra heads in there and like the babies, oh, there's two boys in her womb. The first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Esau, um, Esau means rubbed. And it's like, you know, if you ever hurt your skin and you get a, a red welt, right? In the Hebrew language, you go, oh, Esau, you've got a red welt. Now, this kid is, is you know, like what we're obligated to say when people have babies. Oh, it's so cute. It's so cute, right? Well, Esau is so cute that they call him red rubbed. That's <laughs> what Esau means, Eshal. You know, uh, he's, he, he is hairy all over like a garment, <laughs> It's like, it's got, you, oh, your baby looks like a little flannelette shirt squashed up in a... It's so cute. Fabric softener. Hairy like a garment. So they named him Red Rubbed. Like, it's just incredible. Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand clasping Esau's heel. Come on, guys. Have you imagined this story? The story is supposed to shock you into a new reality, which is what all Bible stories do. Is they, what we do is we read them religiously and we forget, actually, that's a pretty crazy story. You've got a kid that comes out looking like a wallet. <laughs> and then just when you're dealing with the fact that what is this weird, hairy child you've got? It looks like he's been buffed, right? And then before you know it, like we're, this is like we're waiting for Sigourney Weaver to come in with a machine gun. This is the alien movie. A hand comes out and grabs the other kid. No! This is a... I'm sorry, but if you don't understand, this is a crazy story. Who in this room, who in this room has a story? Yeah, when I was born, I looked like a hairy jumper, so they called me Red Jumper. And then I came out and my other sister, when she came out, she sticks her arms out and grabs my leg and tries to pull me back in. Don't leave me in here alone. This, this is a weird story. And the weirdness of the story is the point, right? Because it's supposed to shock you. It's supposed to jolt you. This is chiropractic adjustment that, that, uh, that, that Genesis is trying to go, don't sleep through this. Let me get your attention. I'm going to tell you something really weird with an important point. You understand? I don't know. I just think that's interesting. <laughs> he came out and he was grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob, which means like footprint or heel. Like it's a very interesting, hey, footprint and jumper, you know, <laughs> so weird. His brother came out, grasped me. And so they named him Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to him. Now listen to this. We get the story of the boys. Okay, here we go. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. While Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebecca loved Jacob. It's so interesting, like, like you've got this little matted, hairy hobbit comes out. And when he grows up, he, he becomes a skillful hunter, a man of the open field. In the Hebrew, which, you know, if, as you know, the Old Testament is written in this ancient Hebrew. We conveniently have an English translation. But sometimes you just look behind the veil and say, what did the Hebrew say? And in the Hebrew, when it says he's a man of the open field, it means he's a man of the wild. He's a man of the wilderness. And what that means is, of course, this is in the time in history where they are uh, going through this development in history. These are what you call nomadic 
pastoralists. Nomadic pastoralists, what they do is they move with their tents from place to place to place. Okay, but but well, but how do they survive? Well, what happens is the places that they move to contain food and usually wells for water. And then they're very very smart. The nomadic pastoralists change history. They're, they're the reason cities grew up. They're the reasons that language was passed on, that culture was passed on. Because before that, people were just struggling, sneaking through the forest, going quick. There's an animal bite it, right? And then sneaking up on it and getting it. But nomadic pastoralists said, if we go and camp near water, the animals come to us and then we get them, right? And a few generations later, nomadic pastoralists said, not only do the animals come to us, but if we treat them right, if we feed them and we water them and we brush them, then they breed and we end up with a whole herd. And when we move to the next waterhole, they all come along with us. Nomadic pastoralists change history because for the first time in history, you didn't go out into the wild dangerously trying to tackle an animal, spear it, kill it and eat it, which is very hard work if you don't have a Winchester 308. <laughs> Boys, the girls will tell you what that is later. Um, this is Toowoomba. Uh, you, you, but, 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 but nomadic pastoralists didn't have to take that risk, go out into the wild jungle and risk killing and wrestling and stabbing and spearing, which is a very inefficient way to kill an animal, by the way. Nomadic pastoralists like, no, no, if we are nice to them and we semi-domesticate them and we take them from waterhole to waterhole, they cooperatively come with us and then we can do stuff like milk them and get milk and make butter and we can kill them and eat them and the rest of their friends don't seem to care so they stay with us then we can make we can make clothing out of their skin we can you know do stuff with the byproducts so nomadic pastoralists is an ingenious way to live because instead of going out into the wild taking a risk and catching something it's like your food follows you mary had a little lamb on a sandwich you know like like they nomadic pastoralism is ingenious and so in the story, there's something behind this story which is fascinating because this is what it is, okay? In a world of nomadic pastoralists, Esau grows up and becomes a skillful hunter. He is a man of the wild. He's a man of the open field. What that means is there's something inside him that doesn't like the safety and maybe the routine or maybe the predictability of the nomadic pastoralist lifestyle because he yearns for something more. He's, he's got itchy feet. He, he, he's curious. He, maybe he's bored. Maybe he's got a quest for adventure. But whatever it is, he decides, I don't want to stay home and do all this nomadic pastoralist and put up tents and milk cows and water animals and feed them. I... I and, and by the way, that's how your family survives in nomadic culture. Everyone cooperates and everybody does the work. Men and women, they all have duties and the whole family, the whole tribe cooperates together so we all survive. But there's something about pigskin, Esau, little rough, rough, rough red furry fella. He doesn't, he doesn't want to stay and be part of the family he doesn't want to stay and be part of the tribe. He doesn't want to stay and cooperate with everyone. He's a man of the wild. So he leaves the camp and he goes out into the wild and he becomes a skillful hunter. And why does he do that? Well, we find out later on. Well, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Jacob, it says, was content to stay at home among the tents. That means Jacob was all right. For him, 
life was very meaningful if he just cooperated to feed the family. Life was very meaningful if he did the family work, if he stayed with everyone and cooperated. They all did the cows together, the sheep together, the goats together, the chickens, whatever it is. They water them, they feed them, they skin them, they eat them. There's all these cool things. Like he was happy in that ecosystem, but his brother inherits from his dad. You know what happened with Isaac? Isaac had a taste for wild game. In the Hebrew, it says, Isaac, the taste of wild animals was in his mouth. Isaac has this thing in him. You know what I want to do? I want to go out there where it's more adventurous, where it's kind of more interesting. I, I, I don't want this play it safe thing. I, I need to go on a little expedition out there, put myself in danger. By the way, like if you're, a first, if you're an ancient world person reading this, you're not going, what a hero. You're going, what a lunatic. For hundreds of years, culture has evolved so that we don't have to put ourselves in danger wrestling and getting attacked by wild animals. We became nomadic partials because we did the most ingenious and efficient thing you could possibly do. We made the animals follow us so we didn't have to go out and put ourselves in danger hunting them. And Isaac goes, nah, but I really like the taste of whatever I can find out there. And because Isaac likes it, he passes it on to Esau. Isaac had the taste of wild animal in his mouth. So Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the wild, like father, like son. But Esau, he is content to stay home among the tents. <laughs> um, if you read this in Hebrew, when it says Esau is content to stay home among the tents, it said Esau is tam. That's what the word content is, tam. And if you study the Hebrew dictionary and look up the word tam, is it does not say content, it says whole. Think about this. Esau has a taste for the wild like his daddy did and he wants to get out there. He's a man of the wild, a man of the wilderness, a man of the open field. But Isaac, sorry, but Jacob, Jacob is whole. Jacob is complete. So he's happy to stay home. That indicates that Esau is not complete. Esau is incomplete. Isaac was incomplete, which is why he passed it on to his son. If you're reading this as an ancient world person, that's right. You're going, that's right. There's got to be something wrong with you if you won't stay in community and stay part of the family and stay part of the band of brothers and stay part of the fellowship. And you've got to go off on your own having some weird, you know, like getting a testimony. And, and you would, if you read this as an ancient dweller who read Hebrew, you'd go, this is lunacy. Why would you do? Why would you go out there and do that? For thousands of years, we've become nomadic partialists just to avoid endangering ourselves and, and dying in the wilderness. And now you've got an all-you-can-eat buffet, but something within you is broken and something within you has a taste for the wrong thing and you're going to let it sidetrack you and take you outside the camp. Verse 29 of 25. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country. He came in from the wild. He came in from the wilderness. Listen to this. He came in famished. In Hebrew, the word famished is faint, starved. You get the picture, right? He's been out there running around. 
trying to find something because he's got a taste for the wild. He's a man of the wild. But what he's done is he's used up all of his energy because it is inefficient. That's why nomadic pastoralism evolved as a culture. We learnt to do it so we'd stay alive. And he goes, what do thousands of years of wisdom know? And he decides to go off on his own out into the wild, which you don't do in a nomadic culture because survival is found in the cluster. And he goes out, but he returns from the wild and his brother's there cooking, like making up a beautiful stew. And he comes back weak and starved and famished. Anyone from the action world, Rignus go, of course you're going to come back weak and starved and famished because you're not supposed to be out there doing that in the first place. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. (laughs) Okay, Hebrew lesson. Let me have some of that red stew. (laughs) In the Hebrew, he doesn't say, let me have some of that red stew. He says, quick, feed me some of that red stew. And the Hebrew word to feed means, so what they would often do if, if an animal wasn't eating, it was off its food, is they'd tie it up to a post and they'd grab hay and they would shove it down the animal's throat or grain and shove it down the animal's throat. Then the animal would like regurgitate it, chew it and swallow it again, regurgitate it, chew it and swallow it again, right? And so they, they would take it and the, the, whole, the whole thing, I don't know why some animal wasn't eating properly and it was about to starve to death, they take food and they stuff it down its throat. And this taking food and stuffing it down the animal's throat, that's what Esau says to his brother Jacob. Feed me this red stew. It is stuff some of that down my throat. You understand? The story is portraying the guy who's gone off wandering, flying in the face of all of the wisdom, which is stay in the camp and let the food come to you, baby. Nah, I'm going off exploring. I like the taste of wild stuff. What wild stuff? Oh, I don't know. Might be crickets or I'm an elephant. And he goes off and he spends all of his energy so he comes back in danger of his life. He's not just hungry. Like you're hungry. I don't know, I'm a bit hungry. I haven't eaten since lunchtime. You know. No, no, this is he's starved, he's faint, he's on the verge of death. Quick, shove some of that red stew down my throat. And what is hilarious is, is um, the translation says red stew, but in the Hebrew it says ha-adam, ha-adam. Adam means red. And in Hebrew, they've got a very small you know, range of vocab. So when you want to say like more than one thing, um, you say it a couple of times. So for argument's sake, red stew, they call it, but really it's like ha-adam, ha-adam. It's like red, red stuff. That's what it means. It's like red, red gunk. And most commentators say it's probably like red lentil stew. And he's like, hey, stuff some of that red, red, that ha-adam, ha-adam, stuff some of that red, red stuff in my neck. And there's like this element of both futility, ridiculousness and tragedy about it. He's come in, he's got no idea what's going on. Quick, tie me up to a post and, and, and put that red, that, that red, red stuff. Give me some of that slop down on my neck. This is the story about the first person to be undone by vegan cooking. <laughs> Let me have some of that red, red stew. I'm faint, I'm starved. And that is why later he is called Edom. Edom is like the panel beating of the word Adam, red. Edom, you know what Edom means? Edom means red sauce. If you lived in this part of history, you would go, hey, Pastor Edom, and the Edom is the, 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 what that stew was made out of, liquefied, this sauce that you would put on everything. And forever, because of this particular moment, he is known as red sauce. Everywhere he goes for the rest of the genealogy, hey, saucy, what are you doing? Oh, here comes old red sauce. And think about the comedy of the whole story because he's red and hairy, you know, like 
So it's like he's red, he's been rubbed, he is red, he's red and hairy, and now he's called Red Sauce. He is the ranger of the Old Testaments. <laughs> Teased forevermore. I'm famished. Listen to this. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. He's the oldest brother. He saw the oldest brother. He gets the birthright. He will inherit the authority and the family headship and the power and money from dad. I'm famished. Stuff that red, red stuff. Give me that red slop, whatever that is. Chuck it in my face. No, no, first you sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright to me? Friends, that's exactly why you don't go wandering in the wilderness when you have nomadic pastoralist family you have a community and a fellowship and a camp where the food follows you and you stay and you cooperate and you look after each other and you serve each other and in the process you get fed you cook red red stuff but when you go wandering because like your daddy who has a taste for the open field and you inherit it from him so you're a bit of a wanderer yourself and you're thinking I wouldn't mind seeing what's out there I wouldn't mind going and getting a testimony I wouldn't mind going and just seeing if there's something a little tastier morsel out there somewhere but what happens is you go out there wandering and how many of us know when you go wandering you starve you come back if you come back a lot of people don't come back but they do starve. And then pretty soon when you're starved, when you're really hungry, you make choices you wouldn't normally make. And those choices sound like this. I am starving. I am famished. Quick, I'll eat anything. Well, sell me your birthright. I'll I'll cash anything in when I'm hungry, when I'm faint, when I'm starved. All of a sudden, something that was of profound value before is worthless to me because now I'm starving. And when I'm starving, I'm desperate and I'm not in my right mind. So it's like, just just give me something. Just, just, Just give me anything. What is my birthright to me? I'm starved. No one plans to sell their birthright. But if you let the wanderer in you take you outside the camp and starve you, pretty soon you'll find I will sell my birthright and I'll almost sell it for any price just to meet the hunger that wandering has created. By the way, this is my life story. First sell me your birthright. I'm about to die. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. There you go. He derailed his entire destiny for a bowl of lentil stew. Hi, darling. He ate and he drank. Then he got up and left. Listen to the last sentence of the story. So Esau despised his birthright. So Esau despised his birthright. Proverbs 27 has a verse that says this. To the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. But the full soul loads even honey from the comb. It's the same thing. When you're hungry, you will eat anything, man. You ever seen someone living on the street? They'll eat from a rubbish bin. But someone who's well-fed would walk past that rubbish bin and go, man, I just would never even touch that. 
If you can choose between a buffet and a rubbish bin, you choose the buffet every time. But if you're starving, suddenly the rubbish bin, you can't go past it. Last night, spaghetti leftovers from some other family. The hungry soul. You'll eat in every bit of thing is sweet. You know, I live my life drinking myself to sleep from 10 to 14, sorry, from 10 to 24, snorting, smoking, doing drugs, bouncing around clubs, beds, you name it. All because I was out wandering in the wilderness and I was a starving, starving soul. I was traumatized. I was depressed. I wasn't wanting to party. I was just a broken person. And if I was sober, I always wanted to die and I always felt in pain. So I learned to go out to the wilderness like my grandpappy and my grandpappy and my great-grandpappy before him passed on trauma through our family where I learned to go out into the wilderness and then I sold my birthright for all sorts of stuff. Esau's story is my story. In the book of Hebrews, it points back to Esau's story. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, verse 16 to 17. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau. By the way, for the, for the Hebrew world, this phrase sexually immoral isn't just what they do sexually, although it involves it. This phrase also means idolatry, that God would always say, you know what, when you worship an idol, you're, you're, you're being sexually immoral to me. It's like God is your husband and you're cheating on him. There's a metaphor all the way through scripture about that. It's harlotry, it's fornication, cheating on God with other stuff. So that's what this is saying, right? Don't cheat on God like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the older son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought the blessing with tears. He could not change what he had done. Can I make you an encouragement that I think this scripture wants to snap us into being when we read it together? Don't go wandering. Don't get a taste for wandering. Even if you, if, if, you know, I think many of us, we have a taste for wandering and there's no criticism. But when you have a taste for wandering, come back to the family table where the food is and don't sell your birthright. You know, history has been changed by people who refuse to follow their appetite and who refuse to sell their birthright. It's been changed. Amy Carmichael moved to India and banished child temple prostitution in a generation because she wouldn't sell her birthright, moved by God. Christians founded democracy and universal education and universal healthcare in the first 300 years of the church because Christians decided not to wander from the faith and do other things, but actually to be faithful to Christ in the society they live. So in the first 300 years, they changed the face of the Roman Empire. Why? Because they didn't sell their birthright. William Wilberforce in 1789 made a speech to Parliament that launched the anti-slavery campaign because he was motivated by scripture and he saw his birthright as, 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 as ending slavery and he wouldn't sell it, he wouldn't give up, he wouldn't say no, he wouldn't wander and he wouldn't be dissuaded. His bill to parliament the first time he launched it was voted down 163 against and 88 for. But every year between 1789 and 1807, he presented a new bill to parliament and he tirelessly campaigned to abolish slavery in the British Empire. And after all that wrestle in 1807, the British Parliament abolished the slave trade because for 18 years he mobilised the public. He circulated 519 petitions and he got 390,000 people to sign them. He just wouldn't sell his birthright. He wouldn't wander. George Washington Carver, someone you probably have never heard of, a black man raised in slavery that found the humble peanut, born onto a peanut farm. 
and he found 205 different uses for peanuts, generating income from each of those things, giving freedom to people born into black slavery and generating income for hundreds of poor families. And when asked, why would you do this? He said, I'm a child of the King and Jesus has placed me to make a difference. He wouldn't sell his birthright. Every year in the US, they celebrate George Washington Carver Day, a public holiday in memory of a black man, the name of which many of us have barely heard of. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a follower of Jesus, campaigned against Nazism and changed the world through his teachings on discipleship. Maybe you've heard of his book, The Cost of Discipleship. An influencer that still to this day grips our souls with his reading because he wouldn't sell his birthright. Mother Teresa fed and clothed and loved the poorest of the poor in the city of Calcutta because she wouldn't sell her birthright and she wouldn't wander. In 1930s Japan, a communist revolution was avoided because one Christian man in a Buddhist country stood in front of a communist mob that was about to riot and preach the gospel to them on a bridge. His name is Toyohiko Kagawa. He was the first person to introduce industrial labor reform to the nation of Japan and suggest that workers should be paid a fair wage and that they should be limited to shifts that are fair on them and their family and that they should get weekends off or days off every now and then. Japan had never heard of this before, but a Christian man moved by God, inspired by the scriptures, stood up for Japan. They threw him in jail because they said he was a revolutionary. And he preached the gospel from his jail cell and he wrote books and he changed the face of Japan. And today there's a museum in Japan devoted to him and industrial HR reform. A Christian man who changed the face of a nation because he wouldn't sell his birthright. William Carey moved to India as a shoemaker but called to be a missionary. And when he saw that women were thrown on the funeral piers of their husbands, a tradition called sati, he protested, he wrote to the king and he stood out in the public and preached against it. And eventually India banned the practice of throwing wives on the burning funeral pyres of their husbands because William Carey wouldn't sell his birthright. On the 1st of January in the year 404, the Romans were gathered in their gladiatorial games where they watched people brutally murder each other. And one man, a Christian man called Telemachus the monk, was furious. These people are all made in God's image and they're slaughtering each other like cattle. He jumped the fence and he ran out into the middle of the Colosseum and he yelled at the whole crowd watching and a hush descended over the crowd. What's this crazy guy doing? And he preached the gospel to the city of Rome. And one of the gladiators in one swoop chopped his head off with a sword, killing him instantly. And the rest of the city was so moved by his message and the way he died because he wouldn't sell his birthright that that was the very last time the gladiators ever fought in the Colosseum in Rome. From that day forward, the Roman emperor said, we will never do this practice again. It changed the face of a society. You know why? Because he wouldn't sell his birthright. On the 28th of August in 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., a black preacher called Martin Luther King Jr. animated the civil rights movement and changed the laws on segregation and education in the United States using scripture-soaked, scripture-inspired language. He said, I have a dream. 
that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, launching the civil rights movement and changing the landscape of the United States and inspiring many across history. You know why? Because he was a man of God who wouldn't sell his birthright. Think about the diversity in this list. There's hundreds I could talk to you about. Different professions, very few of them formal ministers or Bible college graduates. Most of them followers of Jesus in their everyday lives. Shoemakers, HR specialists, authors, finance experts, peanut experts. Changed their worlds for two reasons. Because they wouldn't go a-wandering and just be distracted by the pleasures of this world. And secondly, they wouldn't sell their birthright. They hung on to their identity in God and God gave them a life which was an incredible adventure that prevented them from starving but fed a whole bunch of people on the way. Isn't it true I feel God hovering over this space even in my own heart right now? I'm inspired by these stories and I'm schooled by this scriptural text that says, Amen. Don't wander off. We've all get a taste for wild game every now and then. But you know what you do? You come back to the family table. You say, hey guys, quick, give me some stew. I feel like maybe I'm going to wander off. And you eat what's available at the family table. And you fellowship and you serve each other and you cooperate together. And you ask God, would you give me what Jacob had? He could stay among the tents because he was calm. He was whole. God, would you give me what he had? You know, recently I was on a flight and no one knew I was on that flight. My family were flying, my wife and daughters flying to a different city and I was coming back from a family holiday in South Australia. And I struck up a conversation, which is something that happens every now and then. And the guy I was talking to, we started to get on, we started making some jokes, he's a little bit younger than me, having, having a few laughs, getting along with it. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to share Jesus, I'm going to share Jesus with this guy. But before I got to share Jesus with him, he invites me to a party. He says, Ben, you know what, Benny? You know what, Benny? You're a beeping good bloke. He didn't say beeping. You're a beeping good bloke. And you know, I'm going to level with you. You know what I'm doing? Every year I fly up to Queensland and I, uh, I, I pick up a minivan. That minivan is stuffed with weed. Weed as in, you know. And I drive it back to South Australia and I sell it. And that becomes my income for a year. And the next year I do it again. And I'm flying up to I'm flying up to Brisbane because I've got to pick up a minivan full of pot. And when I pick up that minivan full of pot, what I do is I, I, I go and have a big party and I sample the wares with the guys that sell it to me and there's like booze and drugs. They get in women and we just like party for three days and I pick up that van and I drive back to South Australia. It's an awesome party, Betty. And you know what, mate? You're such a good bloke. I'm going to bring you with me. Why don't you come with me? I am a former horrible substance abuser with a life that was gripped with addictions and alcoholism. And I would used to say to my sister, who would, who would rouse me, Ben, you're smoking too much weed. I'd say, Simone, it would be a miracle if I could go a day without smoking weed. By the way, this is what 22 years of miracles looks like. 23 years of miracles. I had a... I wasn't Tom, a complete soul that could stay amongst the tents. I was a wanderer out there starving myself, feasting on every bit of thing back then. 
And I'm on this flight and I've become a Christian a few years, quite a few years ago and I'm there and, and this guy's giving me a dream, man, an addict's dream. Three days and nights, wipe yourself out, puati, puati, puati. And I say, where, where are you doing this? He tells me the address. Do you know where the address is? Less than 200 metres from the house I live in, around the corner in my suburb. I'm rolling up to the airport. My family, they went to Melbourne to see the grandparents. So they were going to be away for quite a few more days, maybe another week. No one would have known if I slipped off to that party. And he's sitting there telling me about it and I'm sitting there laughing. (laughs) And I'm saying, God, only you could do this. Because everything within me does not even want to say yes to that question. And I remember the days where the temptation would have been unbearable and the deep hunger in my soul would have yearned for every bit of thing. And I turned to him and I said, well, thank you so much for your kind offer. But I used to be a terrible drug addict and terribly dependent on all those substances and I could never go back to that. So I'm going to have to say no to your very kind offer. Thank you very much. And he says, what happened? How'd you get out of it? And I began to share my testimony with him. In the middle of me talking to him about Jesus, he gets up and he goes to the bathroom. He stayed for a long time and he came back and he goes, do you realise you just made me mm, myself? I thought that was cool. Proverbs. To the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. But you know the full soul? Loads, even honeycomb. Honeycomb is the ancient world's ice cream. They didn't have freezers and ice cream. So they go find a beehive, get the honeycomb, that's the sweet. And at the end of dessert, instead of serving up chocolate and, and ice cream, they just serve the honeycomb. That's the dessert. That's like, oh man, I can't wait for dessert. You want to see the dessert menu? You betcha I do, baby. To the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. But to the full soul, the full soul loads even honeycomb. Ever had one of those feasts where they come, you want to see the dessert menu? Oh, I'm sorry, man. I can't fit another thing in. You know, Christmas where you like wear your yoga pants because they're stretchy, you know, it's like, oh man, I need to undo a couple of buttons here. You're so full, you can't fit another thing in. That was the problem with Isaac and Esau. Isaac was whole. He was complete. He didn't have a taste for wandering. Esau was broken. He had a taste for wandering and he starved himself in the desert and he sold his birthright. Ben sold his birthright many times over, but fortunately for the grace of God, it was all washed away under the blood of Jesus. And I find myself on a flight being invited to a secret sin party that's like all of my worst imaginations rolled into one when I was an 18-year-old. And I'm shocking myself sitting back going, I can't fit another thing in. No, thank you very much. I don't even want to glance at the menu anymore. I'm not telling you that because I'm good. I'm telling you that because that is a work of the grace of God for a man who is a terrible addict. And I wonder if God would like to do a work in our hearts and minds tonight. Would you bow your heads and maybe I'll just finish by praying for you then I'll hand back to Pastor Levi. I don't know where you've been, what you've been up to. I don't know what's going on inside you. Certainly not accusing you of anything. But I wonder if you could open your heart and let God's Spirit take His Word and just snap something into place in your heart and mind tonight. Don't wander from the family camp. Don't go looking for something tasty in the wild. Stay in the village. Let God work wholeness in you.
every tendency and temptation to wander out of the fold. Bring it back to God and say, God, please, in Jesus' name, send your spirit and bring wholeness to my heart. I pray for you, friend. I pray God would make you calm, would make you whole like Isaac was. I pray you would stay as a productive part of the village and bring your gifts and your skills to the family table. I pray you'd eat this. The beef that follows you, what the family serves up, I pray you wouldn't wander. I pray you wouldn't starve yourself. I pray you wouldn't be lured into the wilderness. It's not a good place to be. I pray you wouldn't sell your birthright. I pray you, in your context, would have revelation and be a world changer who just refuses to sell their birthright. And I pray that in the mighty name of Jesus.